0: Before going further, let me pray for us. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would glorify your name in this moment. Make our hearts attentive to what your word says. That we would be true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Making much of you, being salt and light in this world. We do ask this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. There was a 15 year old named Jacob Smith who was an avid skier. But what was interesting about Jacob was that he was legally blind, but he loved to ski. How could he do it? Because he literally had tunnel vision that said, and his depth perception, he had none but yet he was a skier. How could he do it? Why would he do such a thing when his vision was so impaired? He did this because he had help from his family. His little brother would take him up the mountain to the place that he would start from. His little brother did it willingly. And when he got to the top there was a two-way radio in his pocket with his dad on the other end volume turned up loud and his dad would guide him down the mountain his dad said Jacob would not trust any other voice he wants to trust those that he loves because he knew that he would get down the mountain, and this is what Jacob said about his dad. He said, I trust him enough to turn right when he tells me to. I trust him enough to turn right when he tells me to. Jacob obeyed his father because he trusted him. He knew him. His father knew him. He knew that he could trust his voice. So my question for you and I this morning, are we willing to trust the voice of God that it has given us in Scripture? To trust and obey. Notice the way in which I said it. Trust and obey. Obedience flows from trust, not the other way around. I don't know about you, but I only want to obey once I have all the information. Okay, I know I'm alone this morning. I want to obey once I have the information. Once I know it, then I will follow. But we don't see that in the Bible. The Bible, it starts from trust. I trust you, Lord. Therefore, I obey. If God is who he says he is, if we understand the text, then we could trust him And obey him. John the Baptist was a man that embodied trust and obedience. He did what God commissioned and commanded him to do. But how did he get this way? How how, how did he embody such trust and obedience? I'm going to first start from the historical narrative. In other words, I'm going to meet him on earth. John's parents was a man by the name of Zechariah, and his mom's name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth had him in her old age, very similar to the story of Abraham and Sarah. But what's interesting about this couple is the text lets us know in other Gospels that they are from the priestly line. They're, they're, they're from that Levitical family. In other words, they, 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 they knew God and his rules, his ordinances. And if we read the text, uh, The description of them is that they were a husband and wife, a man and woman who followed God, who obeyed him. So John grows up in a home where he sees his parents live out faith in Yahweh. This is important for us, friends. For those of us who do have kids, for those of us who do have kids, don't minimize your faith walk in front of your kids. Don't minimize that. And for those of you who do not have kids yet, please don't minimize your faith walk because someone is watching. Someone is watching. Do you obey him? Right, and I often think about this, Russell thinks about this because I grew up in a context where all I had to do was just confess with my mouth. I said I'm a Christian and that was enough. I had no intention of obeying. I just wanted to give lip service to the fact that I am a Christian, but I realize the importance of obeying. I know that word for some sounds very legalistic in our day, but friends, we need a group of men and women who are unafraid to obey what God says in his word. Obedience. For those of us who do have kids, we expect our kids to obey, right? Don't touch that. I said, don't touch that. Now, if you grew up like I did, it it wasn't going to be too many more. I told you, I said, don't touch that. It was going to be now some touch ministry where I'm going to show you what I meant by don't touch that. Because the expectation for my parents and especially my grandparents, Lord, my grandmother, was she had a heavy hand. But the expectation was that I would obey what she said trust and obedience John was a guy who embodied trust and obedience because his parents based on what we have in scripture seemed to be a husband and wife who trusted and obeyed God but so that's from the historical perspective but now from the cosmological or from the heaven word perspective John was a man chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be the forerunner of Jesus. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. The text says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he This is heaven's perspective. God, before the foundation of the world, determined that he would use the son that Elizabeth would give birth to in in her old age to be a forerunner for the Lord Jesus. And John understood his role. He knew his role. As we saw last week, he connected it to Scripture, which means John knew the Scriptures. He knew his role was not to be great but point to the one who was great. That's for us. We are not to point people to us in our greatness, because we have none. Our witness, our job, is to point to the one who is great, because we are not anything except for what he has made us. I love what Paul said, there but for the grace of God, I am what I am. John had a message for the people. His message was a warning of imminent judgment at the hands of the coming one. And he called the people to repentance. If you read the other Gospels, you get more of a a story of what John did at the Jordan River. As people are coming to him, he's pronouncing judgment is coming unless you repent because the king is here. Look with me at what he says in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2. He says to everyone, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I love it because John was not afraid to challenge the religious elite. He, didn't, he wasn't afraid to challenge those in ivory towers. As a matter of fact, if you know John's story, he lost his head because he challenged the king. Your life is not right. And it just makes me wonder, friends. Are we willing to speak God's truth even to those who seem to have influence? Are we willing to share that? What thus saith the Lord. Not to browbeat, not to hurt, but are we willing to stand firm on God's word? John stood and he called the people. He says, repent. And there was an urgency there. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why would he say that? Because the king is here. He's coming to make things right. Because I, I do believe, like what we always think about this, I do anyway, that if Jesus were here, what would be our urgency? How would we speak? How would we go out to those who are lost and say, get right, it's almost over. You don't need to die separated from God. But if you want to be a part of his kingdom, your life has to change. Don't estimate, do not estimate, un- underestimate. The fact that your life must look different to be a part of this kingdom. It can't be the same. You can't go living like I'm just enjoying myself. Oh, he will accept me because he loves me. Yes, he loves you. But because he loves you, he must hate sin also. And sin would not be a part of his kingdom. So John says to the people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in our text, Here are the two things I would like for us to notice this morning. The first thing I want us to see is John's witness to the Lamb of God. In verses 29 to 31, John's witness to the Lamb of God. And the last thing I want us to see is the Spirit's witness to the Son of God. Verses 32 to 34, John's witness to the Lamb of God. Finally, the Spirit's witness to the Son of God. So let's begin with, John's witness to the Lamb of God in verses 29 to 31. The text begins in verse 29 by saying, The next day. The next day. Mm, but what is he referring to? If we, we, we saw last week, for those who were here, John began his witness to those in the religious elite, men who were of the Pharisees who had come, sent by others to come and question John about who he actually was. And then the text says, the next day, the next day, John had a message that was just not for the religious elite, but it was also for the common folk. In other words, this message John had was for everyone. I love it. The gospel is just not for those sitting in ivory ivory towers, for those in Washington, D.C. It's not for those in in state capitals. The, The gospel is for every person the person living from check to check the person who is struggling day in and day out the gospel is for them as well John's message was for everyone but John lets us know that Jesus is on the scene because John sees him now John recognized that he was not the one that one coming after him was greater But as we see in the text, John's voice was still needed. Jesus is on the scene, but John still had something to say. And he did this by saying, behold, the Lamb of God. He's talking to the people now. He's pointing them away from himself. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus here is shown in connection with the removal of sin, taking it away. Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. But the Bible also lets us know that God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So the Father and the Son are involved in this. You don't believe me? Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18-19. to Paul writes here, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Who was was reconciling us to himself? Y'all can talk to him in class. Who was reconciling us to himself? God. The Bible says this, not Russell, but God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. This is why Jesus came. God's doing some reconciling work. This is why Jesus came. And this is what John was witnessing to. What does the Lamb of God point us to? This language, the Lamb of God, referring to a human as a lamb. It speaks of the person, ministry, and death of the Lord Jesus for the reconciliation of the world to God. Now, for those of us who are are, are getting our Bibles and we read, this should bring to mind... Things like the Passover lamb, as well as all of the Old Testament image of sacrifice. Now, if you read in the Old Testament, you would see that every day that a lamb that was sacrificed, an animal had to be killed. And for those of you who like to deal with that stuff, who, who, who raise up your own animals and kill, the Jews did this every day. And so you, this could be messy, blood everywhere. Weird sounds, knife to throat, blood being drained. I saw, and this I digress, I saw one hog killing in my life. And it was a spectacle. (laughs) It was a spectacle. Man, this was the biggest pig I'd ever seen. A big tub of hot water. That pig was shot, dropped in this hot water to get the hair off of him. And I promise you, they didn't waste one part of this pig. All of it. Now, this was just one pig I saw. For the Jews, and what they were doing, this animal sacrifice, this this sacrifice, this Passover, and lambs being slaughtered day after day, sacrificial lambs, this had to be done because there was a barrier between God and humanity. And so God has always provided a way for the barrier between him and humans to be taken away so that there could be reconciliation between the two. But there had, something had to die in order for there to be reconciliation this lamb that John is pointing to this lamb who would die would be that substitute be that way that there would be reconciliation between God and man for the Jew this brings to mind what took place in Genesis chapter 22 verses 7 to 8 look at it with me the text says and Isaac said to his father Abraham my father and he said here I am my son he said behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, "God will provide for Himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son." So they went both of them together. See, for the Palestinian Jew, all lamb sacrifice was a was a memorial, reminding for them of deliverance, forgiveness of sin, and messianic salvation. So John, again, he states that this is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now John, in this text, says that Jesus was greater. He continues to say that Jesus was greater than he was. He could say this, I love it, because he's looking at Jesus. He's looking at him. What, what does this mean? Jesus came in the flesh, John 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, Among us, Jesus was fully God and fully man. See, the prophetic witness of John now takes a back seat. So before Jesus hit the scene, John is driving. He is at the forefront, but now he falls into the background and Jesus moves into the foreground because Jesus is the central figure. Friends, what we do Sunday Each Sunday, we come together. None of us are central. Jesus is central. We're here to proclaim him. We're here to see him. We're here to look to him. We're here to worship him. We're here to bow before him because he is central. Now, when John says, I did not know him, this does not mean that he did not know who Jesus was physically. But what it does mean is he he didn't know him as the unique son. Because, you know, John was actually a cousin of Jesus in the flesh. But John is saying, like, before the Spirit came on him, I didn't know him as the unique son. But now he knows. But this is why John came. He came so that this unique son would be revealed to Israel. And John was a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus. Now, how was Jesus revealed to all of Israel? If we read other Gospels, he was revealed by baptism. Baptism with water. John's baptism served as a sign of the one to come. Look look with me at Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. The text says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Like John's obedience, Jesus was obedient by being baptized because this was God's will. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Well, this baptism validated The ministry and witness of John. John was doing what he was called to do. It validated John's ministry. Also, when Jesus came for baptism, he didn't come as one who needed forgiveness. When we we get baptized, we are acknowledging that we need to be forgiven, not Jesus. He is the Messiah, and as the Messiah, he was the representative of the people before God. Therefore, in his baptism, Jesus identified with sinners awaiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, I love this. Jesus saying, yes, I'm God, but I connect with those I created. I'm like them, yet without sin. So he's our representative, just as Adam was our representative with sin. Jesus is now the representative for humanity. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He did this friends, for you and for me. There was a true story told of a husband and wife who got caught in a severe storm, a hail storm. Hail is big as baseballs, and it's coming down hard. The husband realized he needed to do something. I need to protect my wife. So he draped himself over his wife, allowing himself to be hit, so that she would not be hit. But the hail is coming down harder. His wife is looking at him, noticing blood coming from his head and his ears. He's being pulverized, so much so that he ultimately lost strength and just kinda fell on her. They hit the ground, but where was his position? He's still over her while the hail is coming down on him. Once the storm was over, the news station picked up this story and they went to the wife and they asked her about what happened. And she said these words. She says, every time I look at the scars, I love him more because he sacrificed himself for me. Every time I look at the scars, I love him more because that's a rem- his scars are a reminder what he would go through to protect me friends when we get to heaven it's only going to be one there that has scars and it won't be you and me it'd be the Lord Jesus the Bible lets us know that he still has scars in his hand scars in his side scars in his feet as a reminder of what he went through for you and me and when we look upon those scars what would be our response Our response in heaven would be to worship, to thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did that for me. I don't know about you guys, but when we partake of communion, when we talk about the crucifixion, do you see yourself at the scene? Do you see yourself at the cross? And do you see the Lord Jesus on the cross looking at you saying, it's because I love you. It's because I love you. I did this for you. Not to shame us, but to just show how much he loves us because he stood between God's wrath and judgment that was headed our way. There's no way we could stop that freight train that was coming. That freight train of wrath and judgment. Jesus stood in the way and absorbed that for you and for me. The Bible also lets us know that he became disfigured for you and for me. The B- Isaiah, the prophet, writes that he was beaten so bad that you couldn't recognize him as a man. I know when we watch crucifixion stories or the, what's the passing of the Christ and, and all of that, and they got Jesus on the cross and he's covered, right? When people make statues, they always have Jesus covered, but the Bible lets us know he is totally exposed. He's naked and he is disfigured. He did that for you. And for me, so John could say, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John's witness to the Lamb of God. Finally, the Spirit's witness to the Son, verses 32 to 34. In these verses, John was able to see something with his physical eye. With his physical eye, And perceive what was above and beyond. So he's seeing something physically, but he also knows that there is something deeper behind what he sees. He stated, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. What does this phrase mean, like a dove? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I do. I was like, man, did a dove fall out the sky? Was it a physical dove that John saw? It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that the Spirit descended like one in some sort of bodily representation. But it reminded John, not of a dove that he's physically seeing, but he descended like a dove. He also says that the Spirit remained on him. This word for remain in the Greek is the word "meno." And it means, it's translated remain, and it expresses the permanency of the relationship between the father and the son. So this is not uh, the spirit coming on him and then leaving. This is a spirit coming and never leaving, resting on, abiding on Jesus, in Jesus. This is the same word used in John 15 where Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Permanence. Stick with me. This spirit that was, that, that, uh, that was on Jesus, Jesus will dispense to others in baptism. See, before the spirit came, the Bible says Jesus, I mean, John did not know him. But now that the spirit descended on Jesus and remained on him, now spiritually he recognized Jesus as the coming one. He's the one. That's why he says the Lamb of God. It was by the spirit that he recognized the Messiah. Now, how did John know? How did John know that when the Spirit came and rested on Jesus, that he was the one? How did he know this? It was all from God. God is the one who was the primary actor. God is the one who let John know that this is the Messiah. For he says in verse 33, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Now, I know we're good Reformed people, and we don't believe that God speaks audibly. Oh, that God could tell me something. But I'm, John says here in the text, the one who sent me, sent to me. Friends, let me say, God is always speaking. Now, I'm not telling you that you're going to hear an audible voice. That could be just gas. <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm just saying. But I am saying, he speaks. We got to get in the book. I'm, I'm going to say, I don't say this lightly, but I really feel that we are people, we can be people who forsake this. Our lives get crowded. Or we look to YouTube and what someone else says about Scripture. And we equate that with God's voice. But we don't know what he says in his word. John says, the one who sent me to baptize with water sent to me. He sent me to baptize, and he spoke to me. God is speaking to us today through his word. And I can almost understand and sense that he's still calling us, spend time with me, calling out, get with me. I want to speak to you. But we allow so much in our lives to crowd out the voice of God. We got stuff to do. We're busy. But John is in the wilderness. Other gospels the writers let us know he's obeying God, he's trusting and obeying him. And the God the Father speaks to him and lets him know that the one on whom the Spirit descends, he's the one. When we look at this gospel, the main actor here is God the Father all the way through, but he's behind the scenes. But it's true for us today too. Who's the behind the scenes actor in this thing called life? It's the Father, by the Spirit. He's still doing work. He's still upholding things by the word of his power. So in the text, when the Spirit descended on Jesus his witness then surpassed the witness of John. So now John's witness is not primary. It is the Messiah's witness. And the Holy Spirit is the core of Jesus' messianic ministry. For he is the Davidic king upon whom the Lord promised to pour out his spirit. Look with me at Isaiah 61 and 1. Here it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. If If these words sound familiar, Jesus quoted this in Luke chapter 4 and saw this about his ministry. The spirit descending on Jesus attested to who he is and an announcement that promised the age of the spirit has dawned. John ends by stating that this Jesus is the Son of God. He can say this because he physically saw Jesus. He physically saw the Spirit descend on Jesus, and he gave prophetic testimony regarding the one to whom he served as a forerunner. John was the first eyewitness to identify Jesus as the Son of God. This is what the writer of this gospel wants his readers to know and understand. This is why he writes in John chapter 20, verse 31. Look at it with me. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Friends, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name? Do you believe it? If you believe it, are you willing to share it with someone? Are you willing to share it with someone so that they could draw close to this one who died for them. Here we have two freeways that are looped in this city. The first city we've ever lived in, that had two of them, 440 and 540. We live close to 540 and this it's the wide loop around this city. It sits on the margin of the city which means this, is far enough to keep you from being bogged down with the traffic in the city. So we can be out there, but it's close enough to give you access to the city. And this reminds me of this, many, many of us want God on a loop. We want him on a loop. We, we want to be close enough to look respectable. But far enough not to be bothered with. Don't call me to obedience. Don't call me into this thing called living the Christian life. I'm good, that's for someone else. So we wanna hang out on the loop instead of getting close to where God is at work. See, God doesn't wanna be on the loop, but in the middle, central to our lives. And I'm, I'm, I'm gonna ask myself, Russell, do you often keep God on a loop? And I would like for you to ask that question. Do you often keep him on a loop? (sighs) Don't ask too much of me, Jesus. I'm good right here. See, as the church, we narrate God to the world as John witnessed to the world of Jesus. And like John, we don't call attention to ourselves. But we are servants. Some translations say slaves. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, when the Son arrived, if you notice in the text, the Father and the Spirit were there. What am I getting at? We serve a Trinitarian God. No, you will not see the word Trinity in the Bible, but it's a way for us to express it. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. God, the Father, is not God the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. They are distinct, yet one. I can't explain it. My head hurts. The closest, as my wife reminded me, this is the best illustration I I have. One times one times one equals what? Each one, each number one is distinct. Yet, when they are multiplied, it all equals what? Again, I don't know how to explain it, except we have a God who is three in one. This is who we serve. When we pray as a church, we pray to the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. When we serve, we serve by the power of the Spirit through the Son for the glory of God the Father. The message we have is Christ crucified. In Jesus, we not only have a brother, we not only have a big brother, but we have a high priest through whom God has accessed and sin atoned for. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Uh, we thank you for John's witness to the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your witness to the Lord Jesus by descending on him, by empowering and energizing him for the ministry that he came to fulfill, and he fulfilled it. And we're at that point in our service where we celebrate and worship and think about the Lord Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And so I thank you for your word, Lord Jesus. And I, I pray that as we prepare to worship you through communion, that we would be attentive to you that we would realize that you died for us, your body broken. You shed your blood for us, poured out for the sins of many. And it's only through you, Lord Jesus, that we could be saved. So, Lord, we thank you and we bless you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.